So another thing is, is that we think we're smarter than we really are. Like the first ideas that you have feel brilliant in the moment, when in fact, a rarity of them are actually brilliant. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to The Dirt. Our guest today is a world-renowned author, chief strategist, and keynote speaker. His passion for objective, evidence-based truth has guided over 20,000 CEOs on their quest to drive sustainable growth in companies of all sizes. In today's conversation, we'll take a deep dive into how his anti-dogma, blue sky thinking, landed his book, Metatrends and the Next Economy, on Amazon's bestseller list and drives more than 4,000 CEOs and founders a year to reevaluate their strategic planning process in order to, of course, achieve what he calls extreme valuation. Best-selling author, owner of Creative Retirement Planning, and Vistage International Chair and Speaker, Mark Parat, welcome to The Dirt. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. So I'm sure everyone's wondering, what is this thing that people call extreme value or that you call extreme valuation? Well, uh, okay. So uh, I introduced some some software to my presentations about a year ago, and I now have a thousand forty two case studies of uh, of privately held companies, and it's really rare. I think I'm, I'm confident to say that that's probably more a thousand forty two more than any MBA professor in the world. And the reason why is because they tend to study uh, publicly traded companies. And frankly, how you run a publicly traded company is different than how you would run a privately held company. So in that, what it's done is it's uh, shown us that the average of my audiences is 56 million in revenue with uh, an enterprise value of just over 30 million. And with a mean value gap, meaning like uh, how much more the company could be worth if the CEO fixed what's wrong with the company is uh, just over 9 million. That's each. And the so extreme valuation is having no value gap. And I think what it comes down to is most of the privately held CEOs don't understand private equity. And private equity doesn't go a long way towards um, advertising what I'm about to say. They're, they're the equivalent of house flippers. You know, if you, you, you're you going to buy an investment house, you're going to bring in maybe a contractor or an inspector to figure out what's wrong with it. If the, if the finances work out, you're going to buy it invest the balance and then flip it for an arbitrage. You're flipping it for a profit. Private equity does essentially the same thing to a private company. They buy a company, most of which, I mean, you probably know this better than better than me, most of which there's something wrong with every one of them. Then what they do is they bring in a marketing company to reevaluate their marketing plan and uh, implement a new strategy to create arbitrage. They tie that, stitch it back together with the strategic plan, which frankly, even self-assessed strategic planning by the CEOs uh, in my audiences, um, they'll, they'll self-assess it on a four on a scale of one to 10. And when I witness it, it's more like a two, mm. right? So the strategic planning is really wanting. So they stitch together a uh, marketing plan with a strategic plan, which I believe you would call a growth strategy. And then implement that in the business. And within three to five years, you flip in that business for a major arbitrage. What my argument is, is why don't we actually provide that service for the CEO themselves? And then the CEO can pocket that arbitrage. And frankly, it's better for investment bankers too, because if if I can catch the CEO earlier in the cycle, not in the latter stage of uh, preparing for sale or succession, is you catch them earlier and now they're building a more durable, more sustainable company. And that's frankly, that's my mission. And in the process, we make them significantly wealthier. Like there was one, one man that I, I coached over the last two years that when I first got him, he was an asset sale. He was worth about maybe 5 million. Um, I got him to about 35 million. And then growth strategists got him to uh, 80 million. 
So now you're sitting back going, that's a major arbitrage within a very short period of time. And frankly, if he stuck around for a little longer, which he's 72 years old, so he's probably not going to do that. But the deal is if he stuck around for a few more years, he might be able to go from what was an asset sale to a stock sale on my watch, then from a stock sale to a multiple of revenue of up to three to five times. And it's all because he didn't build the company correctly. And I think this is what it comes down to. You tell me your opinion too. I think what it is, is the ingredients that the the, the CEO has to utilize or, or manifest to build the company are not the same ingredients that create extreme valuation. Like they have to go through a metamorphosis at some point in the latter stages, like the maturity stages of their business, they have to become more than a CEO. They have to become chief strategists. And frankly, that, that really suffers for the majority of all CEOs. Like uh, if I get, uh, I don't know that your audience would all understand Vistage, but there are these things called Vistage chairs. Are, are you familiar with how the, the whole thing works? And maybe I can explain it to you and that'll explain it to them. Yeah, please do. Okay. So so what, what happens is, what Vistage is, is, is really it, the official definition of it is an ad hoc board of directors for non-publicly traded companies. So at some point, the, the CEO of a company that's, that's gets beyond a certain growth, they start to realize they've outgrown their counsel, that their CPA is not a good business person, their attorney is not a good business person, and they, after a certain level of skill, they can't turn to them anymore and say, how do I get better? And the only way, if you use a tennis analogy, it's a really good one. The only way after a certain level of skill development and physical uh, conditioning, the only way to get better is to play tennis with better tennis players. So that's what Vistage is for business owners. You go into a room, there's no competition allowed in the room and no uh, financial relationships allowed in the room. And then what happens is you would bring your challenge to bear, the one you're emotionally attached to it. Well, I'm not emotionally attached to it. So I can take you out to the woodshed and slap you around out of love and get you, hold you accountable to fixing that challenge. Uh, And it's absolutely miraculous to see it go down. And really what it comes down to, now this this is the research that I've done within evolutionary theory for my second book that's due out later this year. It turns out none of us are really all that smart. Not a one of us, not even Einstein. So uh, a perfect example of that is he wore the same clothes every day. And, and then they tried to couch it as if he bought the same suit. No, he was wearing the same suit every day. So the, the, the argument is, is that we are a collaborative species. The moment we started to collaborate as hominids, we became human. So it's, it's better to collaborate around our challenges and it ends the isolation for the CEOs. And there's something about like the second your signature is on the front of someone else's paycheck. They can't tell you the truth anymore. So they can't tell you all the truth. They can't tell you breath smells. That's a stupid idea, like your last stupid idea. So Vistage is where you come to have your answers questioned. So in that- You're dropping a wealth analogy. So I just want to stop for one second to make sure everyone got this. So extreme valuation is is connected to the eyes of the acquirer, right? Um, And connected to the idea that whether you're exiting a private equity or a strategic- or whatever the exit the exit opportunity is, you need to think about transferable value in the eye of the acquirer. And yeah, you have to become an investor you gotta, instead you of a business owner. From an investor perspective, that's exactly, okay, so that's number one. Number two, you said one of the things that you've seen fundamentally as, as a member, speaker, and chair at Vistage, one of the mm-hmm. you know renowned <clears throat> groups out there is, is the network effect of being around CEOs like you with similar challenges, maybe different industries, but similar pain points. And, well, well said. And, and that's so I want to make sure the listeners got both of those because that's, you know, that's a wealth of knowledge alone right there. And then yeah. the third thing is is leveraging that group um, for for expertise um, and and for where to find additional expertise, whether that's, you know, gross services, as you mentioned, or bankers, whatever, whatever that might be. Right. Well, and, and what, what I'm on a mission of most recently is I see a trap. There's two traps I see that are, that are happening for Vistage groups. And the first one is, are you familiar with the gym membership statistics? If I'm not, if, whether I am or not, you let me know. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so, so what do you think the percentage is 
that actually uses the gym instead of just paying for it? 10 to 20 max. It's 12. Yeah. So it's 12. All right. So, but then if, you know, uh, do you go to gyms much? Uh, I used to a lot more than I do today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well then maybe, you know, the answer to this. Okay. So of the 12% that pay for gyms and then use the gyms, um, how many of, the, of them do you think are using the equipment correctly? Probably another 10 to 20. Yeah. So it's, it depends on, on kind of the person's skill level with gym memberships of, of what the percentage they tell me the, from an anecdotal perspective, because it's very difficult for me to study. I can tell you how many actually use it and the months they're more likely to use it. It's kind of obvious to you. I don't, I don't need to go into detail with that. It's usually January is the, is the high side and December is the low side. But the, the, uh, the argument is, is typically people that go to gyms regularly, they'll say half the people use the equipment correctly. At least that's the anecdotal evidence. So we're down to 6%. And then of the 6% that actually pay for gyms, use the gyms, use the equipment correctly, how many of them do you think aren't doing something foolish like steroids? Something that's gonna come back to haunt them later in life. So if I'm joining a gym to get healthy, how many actually do? It's the minority of the minority, right? So that's, that's the summation of that. Well, that happens in Vistage too. So what I find out, what I find is we are hardwired to sell ourselves out, to play the victim, to be fear-based, to, um, to sell ourselves out in the way of like, yeah, I'll get around to it. And then typically what I'll do is I'll ask the question, how many people have, you, have ever heard wisdom from speakers and then done nothing with the wisdom? And if they're humble, the hands will go up in the air. And then I typically say, so I'm not the only idiot in the room, right? So another thing is, is that we think we're smarter than we really are. Like the first ideas that you have feel brilliant in the moment, mm. when in fact, a rarity of them are actually brilliant, maybe one in your lifetime. So it's, it's one of the conditions of, of human nature. So what, I, what we need are mechanisms that defeat the human nature foibles that derail success. So one of the ways is if you have more eyes on the prize, and that really comes back to a lie that biographers tell us. So if you're a big fan of biographies, you, you will recognize if you're willing to read the historical account of the times that the biographer romanticizes the big figure, typically a big man, right? That smarter uh, divine inspiration and all that turns out to be crap. What it turns out is if a historian writes that same biography, it's a totally different book. And it turns out that that person, whoever the famous dignitary is, typically wallowed in obscurity for decades and then built incrementally on discoveries to the point where their one discovery went viral. But when you do the historical account, the past remembers better than it lived. So historians have to fight that tendency in human beings. They don't, they don't want to be romantic about a person. They want to actually tell the historical account. And what we really are are grinders. So, you know, I'm the CEO of a company. I'm a grinder. And I've been grinding away in obscurity for the last 14 years, cracking the code on what creates extreme valuation in every business model within the American economy. The reason why I'm doing that is because, and this is going to be a little lengthy, but it's because um, through commerce, we are capable of what religion hopes to accomplish and what politicians fail at. And that's taking care of a large scale community. See, if I want to sound like some cutting edge intellectual, uh, especially at a university, all I have to do is assassinate the character of commerce and capitalism. But really what I'm admitting then is I'm a terrible historian that the uh, it's only the best way to ever run a country in the history of countries. But sure, let's throw it out the window. So to me, that's uh, it's um, trite and it's it's like lazy academia and lazy journalism, frankly. So what we need to do is actually acknowledge the noble, necessary work our CEOs are doing, because on average, especially within Vistage, they have 373 employees. That's a lot of people counting on them making excellent decisions. But there are some things I see that stand in the way and one of which sits in our pocket. Uh, you know, the cell phone, you know, having, having a, a computer in our pocket should be the greatest emancipator of mankind. Yet what it really is, is an idiotic echo chamber because of algorithms. And if we are not intellectually humble and curious, 
uh, we're headed for a fall. And that's the overwhelming majority of privately held CEOs I see. They're accidentally arrogant. So there, it requires for Vistage membership, although I'm seeing it tested right now, especially for, for politics, is um, it requires intellectual humility. So, so what, that's the reason why I wrote my second book that'll be due out later this year and next year. It's about why we're so politically divided. In fact, Noel helped me come up with the, uh, with the title of it uh, being The Woking Dead. So it's an even-handed account of the stupidity of the right and the stupidity of the left and why we evolved to be so politically divided and what we can do about it. So the, the subtitle is going to be called uh, The Concrete Steps to um, Solve America's War with Itself. Hmm. So what we need is intellectual humility. And if we come from intellectual humility, we set aside our political convictions. In my case, when you're a business leader, you've abdicated your right to play victim to anything ever again, least of all politics. So what I want after they see me speak is to take their political convictions and throw them out the window. Because if you add up all the employees and their families and then the customers and the vendors, there's a lot of people counting on business leaders making excellent decisions. And frankly, politics makes us stupid. You have so, something really important too, right? Um, this, this theme of human beings being hardwired <clears throat> to prove ourselves right, right? Whether that's searching through the, I think you called it the idiotic echo chamber of the internet or mm -hmm. um or surrounding ourselves with people like us which so many founders tend to do right um yeah. brilliant technologists surround themselves with brilliant technologists all all the time right um yeah. and then who's building the business <laughs> right who's going yeah. to market who's who's helping exit the business so yeah um you know it's um <clears throat> and then you bring up this other concept of um why we're so divided right why we've evolved evolved to be so boring and and predictable and well said. Um, you know, can you just, I, it's fascinating to me when you start tying those concepts towards, you, you know, concepts of human nature and psychology towards the way that people purchase, right? Because even every B2B yeah. business is a B2C business at the end of the day, because you're selling to somebody. You mind just talking a little bit about yeah. you know, how that ties to marketing? Well, the, the, the best author on that subject is named Gad Saad, right? G-A-D-S-A-A-D. -A -A he wrote the book, The Consuming Instinct and the parasitic mind. Now he wrote the parasitic mind as a, as a result of all of his theories being attacked so much on the political left. And that the, the uh, so he was, he was really the first author to kind of take me down the rabbit hole of why we're so politically divided. So he's a professor of evolutionary psychology at a Concordia University in Montreal. And he's kind of a pisser. But before you go down the rabbit hole of researching Gad Saad, you gotta recognize his, although his studies are some of the most clever I've ever come across it's about studying human nature, I mean, literally genius, every, every one of them. The, uh, the argument is, is that he enjoys uh, um, blowing your hair back. Like, so if you're easily offended, he's getting a kick out of offending you. So you got you to gotta prepare yourself when you go down the rabbit hole with Gad's side. He actually calls himself the Gadfather. He's kind of a pisser. So the way he talks and the podcast that he's on, things like that, it's, it's really fun stuff. But the argument is, is that uh, a perfect example is there are some significant differences between males and females. But wait, before I go down that rabbit hole, my famous line about this is, is that I essentially teach CEOs how to predict the future more accurately by getting them to understand human nature a little bit better. So uh, through evolution. So and what I say to them is the day you buy a minivan, even your car insurance company knows you don't look good naked anymore. Just kind of that's how life goes. As we pursue Darwinian metadrives, so what are called biological imperatives, the decisions that we're going to make in our lifetime are, become highly predictable. So it's, it's almost a cause set in motion. It, it is almost biological determinism. So then in, in one of my exercises, I walk the CEOs through what, does, what an average baby boomer did at different intervals of their life. And what this does, this answers the challenge that I had when I graduated college, that there was a very stubborn concept in economic theory. It was called the rational agents theory. It was proposed by Verblin in 1900 and stuck around for 90 years until Daniel Kahneman and Amos Sabursky came out with their famous studies 
uh, of, in, in human decision-making called heuristics. Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics, the only psychologist ever to do so, and it turned economic theory on its ear. It became uh, highly predictable about the foolish ways that human beings make decisions. Um, like, for example, people are more afraid of flying than they are of riding a motorcycle, significantly more afraid. And yet you are 14,000 times more likely to die on a motorcycle than you are on a plane. So then we should start throwing in emotional decisions. It's like all of a sudden it's, it's rationality is no people like people are not perfectly rational. I'm sorry to say economists, you are wrong. Uh, not only did the internet prove that wrong, but so did Danny Kahneman. So the argument here is, is that if we go down the rabbit hole of evolutionary psychology, suddenly business decisions that are made on a regular basis become highly predictable. And the subtle differences between how women choose to buy things versus men become pronounced. That work is supported by Luann Brenzadine, who wrote the book, The Female Brain. And by the way, she just published The Male Brain and The Male Brain's only about 110 pages long. It's like a nice, light, easy read. Turns, right. turns, <laughs> it turns out there's some serious structural and chemical differences between the male and female brains. And frankly, it explains why there is no economy in the world where women buy Porsches to impress scantily clad men. Oh. So a, a perfect example of that would be Gad Saad's study on how tall men are when they're estimated by heterosexual females. So if they take a picture of you and put you in a crappy car, like a Ford Focus, something like that, and then put you that same picture of you, same clothes, same everything in a Bentley, females will uh, estimate your height as two inches taller in the Bentley. And guess uh, now that the uh, social psychologists can use that as uh, a proxy for physical attractiveness in males. Guess how much uh, taller women want their men? Six foot two, inches, two, two inches taller than them. Than them. Yes. So it's very oh. difficult for uh, men don't seem to care much about that. Yeah. Certainly not status things like if you take the same woman and put her in a, in a, uh, a crappy car or a Bentley, she's not estimated to be physically more attractive in a Bentley. There just isn't because men don't care as much about status. So the old knock on males was uh, they treat women as sex objects, but it turns out women treat men as success objects. Huh. So why do men choose to, to buy this car or that car? It's because it can be an honest signal of what is referred to as his phenotypic quality. How good would he be as a mate choice? So that's why we like, we like the nice cars. And men are, are 95% of car collectors are male just like 95% of shoe collectors are female. So there's some overlap between the two. So we wanna make this completely sexist conversation, especially between two dudes. The, uh, the, the situation though, is it gives great explanatory value about why people do what they do. And one of my encouragements in my presentation is that, um, is that you need to understand your customer base at an intimate level. I'll give you an example. I was presenting in Buffalo and one of the, uh, the companies in the room had just hired two kids from SUNY Buffalo. One was a marketing guru. The other one was an ArcGIS specialist. Are you familiar with ArcGIS? Yep. But but well, for the audience, why don't you just yeah, give a little brief explanation? So it's, it's geospatial information. You might know it better than me because I'm convinced the only way to be good with computers is to be younger than me, right? Like the closer you are to 20, the, the more adept you are. Uh, a, a speaker, his name escapes me, but we're kind of chasing each other around the planet because he tends to speak before I do. Um, so the groups that I speak to will actually uh, inform me of what he says. And um, what he says is that uh, I'm what's referred to as a digital immigrant. I, um, I did not grow up in a digital environment. I grew up in an analog environment. So I can work kind of with computers because I'm 55, right? So the, uh, the closer you are to 20, the more of a digital native you are. I think that's a pretty salient point that he brings up. I think that's quite honest. So these two kids, or I call them kids, but they were recent graduates from SUNY Buffalo, uh, were specialists in these two wings. And this, this one CEO said, would you sit in on a Zoom call as we work out a marketing plan for one of our customers? Now, this isn't just smart. This is genius. So smart 
that the CEO didn't even realize how smart it was until I pointed it out to him. Because one of the things I encourage my, my B2Bs to do or business to business companies to do is to pay for the market research for a few of their B2Cs. Because if then you know your biggest clients B2Cs and their marketing plan, you'll know whether their check is going to continue to cash in the next downturn or next decade. So it's your market research is their market research. So you have to know your BCs. And if you don't know your BCs, you've never done strategic planning. So you're guilty of wishful thinking. And and I don't like wishful thinking, partially because I I talked to CEOs at a suicide in the financial crisis. Never want to do that ever again. I'm not trained how to do that. And that was, frankly, if if you and I were having a private conversation over a scotch, then uh, I'd be using different words than long and arduous. Never want to do that. So I am a walking woodshed meeting for private CEOs. I gleefully take them out to the woodshed and slap them around out of love about stupid things they're doing so that I never have to have to conversations with them about we suicide. We all <laughs> so, so the argument is, is that um, in the case of this B2B studying the B2C, so we did a Zoom call and the marketing guru figured out the avatar of the end user of this company. And this company sold home generators. So just uh, you know, out of curiosity, what do you think the end user of the home generators, you know, like power goes out, lights go back on kind of a thing. What do you think that, that, um, that demographic looks like? Stay at home mothers. Uh, you know, you're pretty close. It's 55 year old females in flood zones. So as soon as they figured that out, the kid who was an ArcGIS specialist pulled up a heat map, which is essentially a, a geographical GPS map with nothing on it except the geography. And then you can overlay certain things that you're interested in. Mm. So, and he overlaid flood zones in Western New York and then pulled up 55 year old females and where do they live and overlaid it onto the flood zones and the geography of Western New York. That's surgical marketing. So if we can take the marketing for our privately held companies to the sophistication level of publicly traded companies, now they won't just outcompete the publicly traded company because they're more nimble. They'll outcompete them because they're more sophisticated too. Now they'll eat their lunch. Then what, what, what does that do is you start to deploy a marketing uh, plan as such. Now the valuation of the company skyrockets. Now all people like me and you have to do is convince them to start acquiring their competition, how to do so, how to work um, software into the business model. You know, like there was there was a company that, that I referred to growth services recently. They were an $80 million plumbing company. And the reason why they contacted me was they said, well, when they called me up and said, you know, Mark, we field um, three to five uh, M&A advisor calls a week. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and yet you're on the phone call with me. Why? And they said, well, because I'm not interested in knowing if I can get a deal. I know I can get a deal. I want to know what's the best uses of my resources. Should I be acquiring right now? Should I be growing organically? Should I be selling? I was like, oh, you're looking for a fiduciary relationship. The challenge is fiduciaries don't know the answers to your questions. And the people that do know the answers to your questions aren't fiduciaries. And frankly, the knock on investment bankers is they're like real estate agents. And when do you think your real estate agents want you to sell? Immediately. Yep. Yeah. So, so that means there's a conflict of interest there. So when I refer a CEO, which I can refer somewhere between 500 and a thousand CEOs a year, like last year, I spoke to 4,200 CEOs. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and that was big for me, but the average is probably going to be somewhere between two and 3,000 a year. So that means I can give uh, investment bankers um, 500 to a thousand referrals a year. So that investment banker is trying to dazzle me not the client, because they want my referrals. But they know the way Vistage is set up. Vistage is kind of like a legal mafia. They hold my future in their collective hands. They rate me at the end of my presentations, kind of like Yelp. Like, did they like it? Didn't they like it? Like a thumbs up, thumbs down kind of a thing, as if I'm a restaurant. So, and whenever I bring that out into the open, they all kind of crack up over it. And they kind of get a kick out of that, right? They like being the judge. As long as they don't confuse that with an accomplishment, we're cool. The, the, uh, and we need them to ju- kind of judge speakers to see, are we ready for prime time kind of a thing? And are we on the rails or are we off the rails? Well, but the real truth of it is the chairs have an intranet called chairnet. And the other chairs of the world, which there's, I believe there's 1800 all in, 
they won't know to go seek the scores of that group unless their chair talks nice about me on chairnet. So if the group's the legal mafia to me, that makes the chair the Don or Donna Corleone in my world. I got to kiss that guy's ring by taking care of the member. Well, all my referrals of all my experts know that. So that, by extension, just turned a non-fiduciary industry into a fiduciary relationship because they got to dazzle me and I'm a fiduciary. Sure, I mean, so what, what is, very similar to the way we work with bankers, right? That they, yeah. want, they want the quick win, but they want it to be big. They just don't want to have the patience to wait two or three years to get it big. So, you yeah. know, let us, Orchid Black, get it big, right? Um, yeah. And ultimately hand it off so that they can get their quick win. I mean, that's, you know, at the end of the day, it's a founder focused culture that's that's oftentimes missing from the that world, whether it be private equity, investment banking, whatever. Um, and that's because, like most things, these these incentivization um, is misaligned with um, with with what founders need, right? Which is a partner yeah. to help them grow the hell out of their company <laughs> and then exit. Um, and so yeah. it's great that you mentioned things like Vistage that that provide that first foundation and then some of those extension partners that help, you know, grow and exit. Yes. So so the uh, um, I, have, I have an emergency here. So do oh. you think we could pause the recording here for a second? Yeah, definitely. Yep. Awesome. I got to let the dogs out. OK, so but, all right, so what you just said actually brings up what's wrong with the business model that I have. So because like, all right, so if you're going to ask me questions about stocks and bonds, I'm, you know, I'm a fiduciary wealth manager, right? So I can answer that. I'm a practitioner in that space. I can tell you where economists are off the rails and they can kind of tell you where my industry is off the rails. That's the value we provide to each other, right? So now the, the dilemma with it is because I'm a fiduciary, I can't be um, uh, a, despite the fact that I'm a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor, I can't be a mergers and acquisitions advisor. So what that means is I have little practical knowledge. So that makes me more of an academic in your space. So that's why I need relationships like you. So, cause I need to know what's rattling around in your head so that I can introduce it to the CEO earlier in the cycle. So you don't have to even do that work. Then what I can do is bring you someone after I prep them via Vistage and how Vistage can work in that ecosystem is we work out a growth strategy for somebody or just a marketing marketing plan because that's what they need first. Then we hand that off to the chair and the Vistage community to take that person out to the woodshed and slap them around out of love and hold them accountable to implementing that because, you know, life gets in the way, you know, and, and like uh, I just kind of out myself with all this. I don't just hate cardio. Like there's not enough syllables in the word hate to describe how much I hate cardio. So if I hire a personal trainer, what do you think they're going to make me do? More cardio. Yeah. You know, so the situation is that, that that's what we need because we will sell ourselves out on the things that we don't like. So what, I, what I've done is with the software that I added to my presentation, it's essentially a self-assessment. So we figured out what's wrong with the Vistage members. We can tell them what's wrong for them. And then what I encourage them to do is once we figured out what's wrong with them is they take their report in an exercise, hand it to the CEO next to them, and they hand it to each other. I read, so let's say you and I are members and I read your report, Jim, about what's wrong with your company. Now you can't hide out. No more processing kiddie pool issues like my two employees are fighting, guys. What should I do about it? How about fire both of them? Who cares? You've got a $9 million issue over here that you're ignoring and throwing crap like this at us when you need to be focused on sales and marketing and, and the stuff you don't like. And here's, here's really the genius of it. After interviewing for my, my first attempted book, which never was published, I, I might work it into this next one I'm, I'm working on as soon as I'm done with my second. The, um, I interviewed a, a series of turnaround specialists, especially after 2008, to see what was the cause. And the single greatest causal factor is CEOs ignoring what they don't, uh, what they don't have strengths in. And that's human nature. We tend to ignore what we suck at. But what we stink at becomes a flashpoint of catastrophe in the next downturn. So what I'm looking to do is to minimize the work that we send to turnaround specialists. 
how I think it helps the entire ecosystem. And maybe I'm kind of the linchpin in it, which I, which I frankly enjoy being. I like being the nexus of information. So the, I, I, and my role in all of this is to research, write, speak, and refer. And then what I do is I sit in on the referrals. So if I sent you a referral, I'd sit in on what does Jim Barrish bring to the marketplace? What is the solutions that you're going to have for this person to get them to grow? And that helps me crack the code on what creates extreme valuation in that industry. Then what I do is take some of that information and give that to the Vistage shares earlier in the cycle and teach it to them so that we can create. It's, the term is actually called the accretive benefit of acquisition. What I've come up with, which is going to be the title of my next book, The Secret Stock Market, Why Publicly Traded Companies Acquire Privately Held Companies. And how can you qualify for that? So that's the role that you and Orchid Black play about bringing them to market the right way, which, you know, I don't think I've, I've sent you guys a referral yet that was built the right way. Because what they're doing is, is that, well, there's a few things I see that's wrong with, with private CEOs. So you want me to like run down a list of like the, what, what the yeah. number one thing? The number one thing I see wrong is they surrender strategy to the sales force, which is a fool's move because sales forces are not strategic. They also suffer from a Pareto distribution. Are you familiar with that term? No. Okay, so what Pareto is, is like, well, you're familiar with the 80-20 rule, Yes. right? All right, so 80% of the revenue comes from 20% of the clientele. Well, when you go down Pareto, it becomes much more sophisticated and scary. 75 of the 80 comes from one customer. Mm -hmm. So the overwhelming majority of privately held companies are not well diversified enough. And it's because they surrender strategy to the sales force. And frankly, human beings, like a human maxim that I've, I've uncovered in my research is human beings are hardwired to make other human beings wrong and ourselves right. Sales forces are guilty of that. They're also guilty of assuming the past will equal the future and it doesn't. So when we look at it and go, okay, are they accidentally arrogant about is the check gonna contain it cash in the next downturn next decade? The answer is hell yeah. So what we have to do is a series of exercises with the sales forces to get them to take ownership of the fact that the future is not necessarily good. And they've accidentally created a fragile relationship with their customer base. So where should they get new customers? Ones that, that are more robust during rough time periods. How do we diversify all that stuff? So I teach that to the CEOs in kind of a sneaky way. Uh, I, I run a, a Socratic exercise where they're the, the test patients, they're the subject. And then at the end of it, I warn them. We call it morning after vistage. They just heard a speaker and now they kick down the door at their sales force and go, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And then I role play as if I'm the head of sales. And I fold my arms. Let's, let's say you're the CEO, Jim, in this case. And I'm sitting there with my arms folded going like, yeah, Jim, that's an awesome idea. Like last month when you heard that other speaker, that was a good idea too. And, uh, and the last conference you came from, now there's a whole series of speakers. Those are good ideas also. And then I asked for a show of hands. How many people here are guilty of starting initiatives and not following through on those initiatives? Every CEO. Every CEO. And, you know, they kind of look at their shoes at some point because they crack up as soon as I say morning after Vistage or morning after conference, you know, that they all kind of look at their shoes like, damn, I'm guilty of that. And I was too. So and what I realized was, no, we can't do that to your sales force because that, that allows your sales force to make you wrong. And they want to see if the initiative sticks. You got so, two really big, important points that I just want to make sure people got. So number one, customer concentration, right? Yeah. Um, Every company is guilty of eventually being discounted when it comes time to exit almost every company because they've got you know, 30, 40, 50% of their revenue from one or two customers. Um, yep. So that's a big one that, that founders really need to take a look, honest look at. Um, second one that you brought up is um, entrusting strategy and go to market to the sales force, which is incentivized um, in many cases to not do that. Um, and also is yes. typically not... Um, you know, the, the most strategic, as you mentioned, resources um, in many cases. So two very important points. Do not trust, do not make your sales force create your strategy. They should be a yeah. big part of it, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also um, ensure that, you know, your customer concentration is in a manageable fashion prior to exit. 
You know, what's funny is I think we're writing my next book right here. So the, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen back to this and transcribe it and then you know, help me create the outline for the next one. I got to finish this second one first, though. And I, I, have a, I have a tendency to struggle with that. So but the, 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 the other part of that is this. Um, what I tell them is, is that uh, one of my folksy advice that I give them is to go on a long vacation um, and take with them a legal pet. So if they normally go away for a week, go away for two. If they normally go away for two, go away for a month and take a legal pad with you. Write down every freaking thing your office calls you about while you're away. Then your homework is to take that laundry list back to your Vistage group and your chair, take you out to the woodshed and slap you around until you no longer tolerate that from ever happening again. And the reason why is because most like you and I understand um, due diligence, you much better than me. But uh, due diligence is really code for I'm not going to pay what I promised you. It's how do I get you into a room? You signed a legal document allowing me to look behind a curtain, see what's wrong with your company, and then hand you back a bill for everything you didn't build it the right way for. The number one thing is um, dependence on the CEO. Because if, if I'm buying your company, Jim, and I walk in and hand you a fat payday and you're off to Hawaii and paying capital gains taxes, um, what am I left with? Right. So the idea is uh, they have to become, they have to go through the transition, become the chief strategist of the company and make themselves obsolete. And as soon as they do, their, their company is actually worth something. Then they have to get into like, okay, should we start doing acquisition strategies? Should we be growing organically? Should we be selling? Do I want this to be multi-generational? The beauty of it is the same ingredients that create extreme valuation create durable, sustainable companies. So even if they're multi-generational, it's worth it to go down the rabbit hole. And so what I'm working on right now is how do we add a level of sophistication, a scrutiny to their vision? Because that's the second thing I see that is uh, a fool's move of privately held CEOs is that they think they're scrutinized and they're not. Because as soon as your signature is on someone else's paycheck, they can't afford to tell you the truth. And, and frankly, it's your vision of what they're being scrutinized about is what they're being measured. So, and you could argue that a publicly traded CEO's vision is over scrutinized, where a privately held CEO is under scrutinized. So there's a massive amount of valuation that they're leaving on the table because they haven't done pre-due diligence. So this software that I've added, and frankly, I'm um, uh, vetting some others. Uh, maybe you can help me do that. The, the deal is though is, um, what I want to do is be able to add in an intellectual property to the to the, the CEO that scrutinizes their vision, kind of pre-strategic planning. So does it hold up to scrutiny? And if so, great. And if not, then you need to build the right company. And you know, you and I have worked on a few things together. And what I've seen is it's really just a revamping of how they didn't build their company the correct way so that, that when they exit, uh, it's more valuable, which to me helps the entire ecosystem of, of whether they're in early stage, mature stage, uh, sale. The only thing we can't do is help them after the fact. And there's some major things. So what I'm doing is stitching together marketing strategy with strategic planning. So let's call that growth strategy or growth services. But also from a tax planning perspective, they have to develop the company correctly. In effect, you can actually sell a company to a trust. And then the trust sells it to the acquirer, which defers capital gains taxes by up to 30 years. Then you buy some cheap in, uh, insurance policies on, on your life, and that pays the capital gains taxes, wipes them out. But that also wipes out all estate taxes that would happen on that company. So now you're sitting back saying, okay, we just, in one case last week, we saved an $80 million transaction. We saved them $50 million in taxes over the life of that program. That got my attention. Yeah. Right. So what I really like is I like being at that nexus saying, okay, this is how we solve this, how we solve this, how we got to solve this. However, it all starts with where you're sourcing your information from. And you have to change that. If you're getting your information from a television, it's like getting your your uh, all of your food from fast food. It's junk food for news. So, and the argument is, is that uh, we're not living in the information age. We're graduating the fewest amount of journalists in the history of journalism. We have 500 times the news outlets we did 20 years ago, 
And arguably, if it wasn't for the Ukraine or COVID, we'd be living in the slowest news era in the history of news. So we're not living in the information age. We're living in the misinformation age. So the way I say it is politicians have to lie to you because your worldview is incorrect because we did not evolve to have a proper worldview. We didn't know there was a world, right? So we're too busy trying to avoid uh, snakes, spiders, tigers, and bears to worry about global statistics. So our mind did not evolve to understand that. So we need to source our information from authors. So I have a bibliography that if people send me an email, I'll send them bibliography free for free. My next book is basically a summary of that bibliography. So if you, if you want to shortcut that, you can wait for my book to come out and, and uh, the, the platforms we're going to be building out around it. But the argument here is, is that um, uh, if you're getting your information from the television, it's fictionalized. So journalists have to lie to us, especially talking heads, because they uh, need you to tune in. It's a transaction business model. So they need your eyeballs. And what grabs your eyeballs are lies. Like you are, you are five times more likely to die from a vending machine accident than you are a shark attack. Yet there isn't vending machine week on Discovery Channel for a reason. Huh. So we need to source our information from better places. So books are the best places to do so. And podcasts, frankly. So and my, my favorite, well, I don't know if it, uh, you know this better than me because you're on a podcast. But um, if it's if it's on YouTube, is it called a podcast or is it called like a video blog or something like that? It, and and frankly, you're younger get away with either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're younger than me, so you should know this stuff better than me. So so the the uh, so you're going to be more of a digital native than I am. The the um, the the best show I've ever seen is the Michael Shermer show. And Michael Shermer is a 13 time best selling author, a professor of skepticism. And he can tell you accurately why the Flat Earth Society has more membership today than it did in 1957 when it was formed. So the, uh, what he does is he interviews PhDs. Uh, you know, I think he may have interviewed one or two journalists who are at the cutting edge of the free speech argument. So it's rare when he does that, but the, it's mostly authors. And what he does is he does a long form talk show where it lasts for hours and listening to two PhDs discuss something is, is phenomenal. It really is the source of objective truth, especially if they're PhDs in the hard sciences as opposed to the humanities. So, and the, so there is such a thing as objective truth. And the argument is, it, or what, what two scientists would call provisional truth. So it has, to, it has to pass this crucible of science and then be tested and tested and tested and tested. If so, and it still holds up, it goes into the annals of science as scientific canon. And uh, that's what he um, talks about on his and the methodology for it. So for us non-PhDs, it's wonderful because frankly, being a PhD is, is like being a, a hyper expert in a field no one gives a rat's ass about. So in order for you to build a cohesive argument, you have to cite all these other PhDs. So um, Shermer came to me by way of Steven Pinker. Uh, Pinker turned me on to Alan Fisk and David Buss and Jonathan Haidt and Gad Saad. Gad Saad turned me on to um, Richard Swader and on and on and on and on and on. It becomes this awesome spider web of objective truth that you can never, never exhaust. So you and I will never live long enough to exhaust all of the, the, the acquirable knowledge. But frankly, I'm on a mission to. I want to know why women do the things they do. Like all those memes that you would see on, on Facebook with a giant book that's taller than you about trying to understand women. No, I'm on a mission to actually crack the code on that. What are the differences between males and females? So that this way, um, well, it really comes down to this. I refuse to be manipulated by politicians and talking heads ever again. But I want to study the way they manipulate us so that we can sell more stuff to more people. And if we sell more stuff to more people, we can have our employees' children go to college or uh, whatever it is that they want to do to become more knowledgeable and be intellectually curious. We can leave the world a better place. It is noble, necessary work, and uh, I'm on a mission to help people do that. I love that. I love that. If you can figure out why we are perfectly irrational human beings, <laughs> you have, in fact, cracked the code. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, Stephen Pinker's done a really good job of that. He's my favorite author. He's got three books that are on my bibliography. His latest right now is Rationality, Why It's Important, Where to Find It. 
but his two of his books, uh, two of his 13 bestsellers are uh, How the Mind Works by Steven Pinker. So if you want to understand, like, to me, it's like, how do I understand myself better, my spouse better, my kids better, my employees better, and my customers better? If you're on a mission for that, these authors, Gad Saad being one of the strongest, Steven Pinker being another, Jonathan Haidt being a third, those three are great places to start. You know, why we're so politically divided is obvious in, in hindsight after reading uh, Haidt. Uh, why people buy what they buy is obvious in hindsight after reading Gad Saad. So it's a way to take our marketing to the next level. And frankly, Steven Pinker is the most eloquent out of all of them. He's, well, we he's, like the, he's the king. The rest of us are kind of players in the court. We are going to have to do probably a, a part two of this, <laughs> maybe even a part three through 10, because this has been a, it's been fascinating. Lots of, lots of themes we could keep going down um, on, on follow-up, but you know, for this part um, of the episode, right. To close us, to close us off, we always do this uh, founders five questions that are, sure. they're all around and surrounding growth. Um, and um, so I got a few quick questions for you, just a quick hit sure. and, uh, and then we'll close off here. So uh, first one is top metric or measure that you encourage founders to focus on? Uh, well, first is strategy. So how to free up their time in order to, to focus on strategy. And uh, that's not an easy thing to get them to do. So because they're creatures of habit. So they, they tend to they tend to be uh, tacticians, not strategists. And so therefore, you know, what uh, human nature, what is our strength becomes our weakness. So uh, it means like their nose might be a little too close to the grindstone to recognize that light at the end of the tunnel is really more like a train. So what we need to do is uh, my job is to pull their nose, rip their nose off the grindstone and get them to focus on the big picture. And what, what metric or measure that, that do you see the most that would attach to that? I don't know. I think it's more of a case by case basis. It's the, it's the first to acknowledge that, you know, because a journey of a thousand steps starts with the very first one. The first one is acknowledgement. Then it's what do I need to be held accountable to in order to move the needle uh, further? Um, one thing is, is in my presentations, I teach them how to predict the next recession by surrounding themselves with key leading indicators, by getting them in the room. And they all deal with them. And they are trucking manpower, pallet and packaging. So the companies that are in that space, if you surround yourself with them, how I do it is I give them my cell phone number with carte blanche to call me at four o'clock in the morning. I won't do that for any other CEOs, only for truckers, pallet and packaging companies, because when they're nervous, you know, I get 10 nervous phone calls, something's up. That means, uh, okay, this is the beginning of the end. We couldn't, you know, I'm former Wall Street, we couldn't wait around for economic reports. You know, that's a history lesson. And the mistake we make is we look at economists as if they're soothsayers of the future and no, they're historians of the past. So, and that's not without value. Like, I don't I mean to sound like I'm beating them up all the time, but it's really our attitude towards them. What we really need to do is surround ourselves with, if something's bought, something shipped, that's our economy. So we want to, we want to follow less than truckload trucking. So I coach those guys free. They've carte blanche to call me whenever, because if I get ner 10 nervous phone calls in one weekend, what do you think I'm thinking? Changes in so, the economy. Yeah. So they have they have a relationship with the spot market and each other. So what I do is ask them to call all them, tell them what's going on in the spot market. And, you know, people make a mistake. They'll send the same. Yeah, but truckers are doing terrible. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Tell them define terrible. And they'll say, well, they're, they're struggling to find truckers. I'm like, no, that's good for the rest of us. That means there's too much demand. So right. what you're really looking here is to crack the code on is the demand slipping or not. And if demand is slipping, they'll have too many truckers. So that's vital information. So that, that's, that's the soothsayer. So we get that, pallet and packaging kind of corroborates that information. So I guess I would say if, if we we're going to concentrate on something, it would be that. And then secondarily, they need to recognize what's their relationship with the marketplace. So are they a leading indicator or are they, are they a lagging indicator? How I recommend for them to do that is go back to 2008, 2009, see when did you feel the bad? Did you feel it in 2008, you're a leading indicator. You felt it in 2009, you're a lagging indicator. And then they need to know how sensitive they are. Kind of like what, what you and I are really on a mission to do, but from two separate angles, is to turn the CEO into an investor in the investment that is their business and recognize how much risk they're taking, minimize that risk, and that maximizes valuation. Yeah, and you already you already worked your way through to the next question, which is top tip for growth stage founders. So we're... Uh... 
We're going to skip that one since you already gave me that. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, yeah, yeah. What's, what's your favorite book or podcast that's helped you grow? You gave a few earlier, but any one in particular? Yeah. Well, Michael Shermer. Uh, you could also do the Joe Rogan podcast. You know, some people really like that because he's the king. The rest are players in the court, uh, mainly because um, uh, he has more viewership than Fox News or CNN combined, which, by the way, would be dead last on my list. Yeah, there is there isn't 24 hours worth of news. So I defy CEOs that, that, that are addicted to this to sit down with a stopwatch and see how long it takes to get back to the original story. It just isn't news. You know what I mean? Like when I grew up, you, you probably wouldn't recognize this. You might be too young, but even dogs were nasty. So like when I was walking to school, I grew up in Queens and Bayside, Queens. And uh, I was six when the first knife was pulled on me. It was dangerous, not Bayside itself. That was kind of a sleepy little, um, almost a suburb of New York, even though it was part of New York. But if you went on the subway, it was, you know, bad things were going to happen. Like when, when I saw people with subway maps, I was like, why don't they just paint the target on the back of it? You know, I was afraid of the shrapnel I would catch when they, when they got mugged. Right. Yeah. So, but even dogs, that, that this is a microcosm of how nasty the world was and how nice it is today. You couldn't approach a stray dog on the street. Cause it would bite you. Uh, and people had guard dogs everywhere. My, my, just my walk to any school I was going to, there was at least one guard dog that would leap over the fence and try to get your jugular. Right now dogs look like cats and they put them in baby carriages and walk them to the point where the freaking thing doesn't get enough exercise. And then they get it a gym membership and pay for its cancer treatments. Unreal. Unreal. So the world is so much nicer today. So it's it's different than what it was back in the day. So we're, we're living in a slow news era. So the, the argument here is, is that you're getting opinion and you got to be really careful of opinion. So never trust a politician ever again. They're lying to you to get your vote. Never trust a talking head ever again. They're lying to you to get your eyeballs. Same thing with Facebook. Same thing with Twitter. So you're never going to find peace of mind on Twitter. So and and after hearing me speak, people are so cynical or so skeptical. They're skeptical of even me if they're smart. They should be. So I acknowledge it. And I yep. say, you know, my agenda is this. I make people rich. I make people so wealthy. They end up having an estate at tax issue challenge. I got to solve for them for by finding them a charity that they like better than the federal government. Yeah. And so, so far we have a hundred percent track record on that. That's incredible. Yeah. Cool stuff. What um what what actor would play you in a movie, Mark? <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know, people tell me I look like uh, Chandler from Friends, so whatever that guy's name is, I guess. Which I was thankful for because people told me I look like Doogie Howser before that. <laughs> I'm like, awesome! Uh, I look like a 14 year old gay man. Awesome. Yeah, I think Matthew Perry <laughs> that should, might that should help me better. with the ladies. <laughs> All right, last one here. What would what would be the title of, or what will be the title of your autobiography? Oh man, you know, I, I don't know. It's maybe it's because I'm the youngest of seven or Catholic or something that the, I don't think I matter. So the, the, uh, what I'm on a mission to do is, well, I guess maybe I got to solve that and get over my childhood, uh, in order to do as much good work as I can. So let me say it this way, what I want my epitaph to read. So assuming that I'm not cremated and I'm buried, the, uh, I still haven't worked that out yet, but the, um, I want my epitaph to read, he helped the few protect the many. Hmm. So I'm, I'm on a mission. I will source information from anywhere. If well, like, why do you think I agreed to do this, this podcast? This wasn't just to sell books. This is you're a leader of leaders. So you're talking to a lot of people that have a lot of people counting on them. And it all comes back to, we can never play victim ever again. That's also a human condition. Yeah. The victim mentality. We surrendered abdicated our right to play victim to anything, especially politics, when we became a business leader. So the boots on the ground at your company, they want to play victim to politics. Ah, you know, how many people are counting on that guy making excellent decisions? Two, maybe a dog. Like you, we start adding up all the employees, and the, their families, the customers, the vendors that are counting on us making excellent decisions. We can never play victim ever again, especially to politics. Politics are for lesser minds. And there's, there's a, there's a, if I, if I ever do end up getting a PhD, the study I want to do is I'm going to study people's IQ prior to watching Fox news and post prior to watching MSNBC and post. And my, so the way science works is if 
it's not proven, it can't be called a theory. It's called a hypothesis, right? And then we have to look at the probability of it. Is it, is it plausible? And I think this is plausible, that there's probably at least one standard of deviation drop in everyone's IQ after they watch Fox News and after they watch MSNBC. And oh, I yeah, think for CNN in that mix too. <laughs> without a doubt, you know, so, so as soon as we politicize something, we get dumb. Politics yeah. makes us stupid and we're not, we're not, we can't afford to make stupid decisions. And frankly, I don't want to talk to anybody about suicide ever again. I would so love to see that comparison to, to Rogan, as you astutely pointed out, right? Someone, someone moderate, someone that's preaching the truth doesn't have, obviously has an agenda because we all have an agenda, right? But certainly not an agenda that's completely polarized as all the other news outlets you mentioned, right? The, the, the dilemma is, though, is the, um, I forget who it was that said this. He called it the news industrial complex is divided. And it actually creates division in us. And this is what I'm really worried about. This is what my next book, uh, the reason why I felt morally obligated to write my second book, because originally it was going to be called When Darwin Goes to B-School, and it was basically the evolutionary reasons why people are so boring and predictable in their purchasing uh, patterns. Mm -hmm. But what kept leaping off the page at me is how, how this answers why we're so politically divided and what we could do about it. So it, they're called blue lies. And what it is, is that, you know, people who have giant Trump flags off the back of their car aren't seeking truth. They're actually lying. Uh, the same thing happens on the left. You know, if, if yeah. you're posting on Zoom your preferred pronouns, that's that's a that's a dog whistle to your in-group that you're on the left and you're on the left so hard. And the real deal is, is that the spectrum of left to right isn't correct. It's not a left-right dichotomy. It's more like a horseshoe. So it's because if you study Stalin and you study Hitler, the results of their regimes were very similar. And Stalin killed 10 times the amount of people that Hitler killed. So I, I understand why Hitler ranks in the annals as the worst human being ever, but Stalin gives him a real strong run for his money. And they were on the opposite ends of the political spectrum, yet almost everything they did was identical. So the, the, from a macro view, sure. so the, the argument here is there is an illiberal left and there is an illiberal right and they dominate the political sphere right now, or at least the, the platforms for, for talking. Right. It's the only way to make money. So the real dilemma we have is we, the, there's brilliance in the doctrine of the right. There's brilliance in the doctrine of the left, but we need to cherry pick it because there's stupidity in the right and there's stupidity in the left. That's called the center. Yet there is no news agency that can be centrist anymore and make money. Right. So what we have is a multi-billion dollar news industrial complex designed to divide us. And the flaw here, this is the thing I critical, and I appreciate you giving me maybe a little extra time to tell your listeners this. We had 14 genocides in the 20th century. More people died in those 14 genocides than died in all of the wars of the 20th century combined, which was the bloodiest in the history of mankind. Every one of those genocides was perpetrated by a one-party system. So the only thing worse than a two-party system is a one-party system. Let's pump the brakes. Careful what you're wishing for. This, if it doesn't end, ends in genocide. And that I feel a moral, moral obligation to interject my opinion in. And hopefully some people will listen to me. Well said and, and agree on all points. Um, would you. love to dig into that more on a... Oh, we're definitely going to do this again. Dude. So, <laughs> cool. you know, maybe we can pull it apart and do some maybe some case study work and what have you, because I think I yeah. think your listeners would get a uh, would get a ton of value out of that. Absolutely. I'm sure they would. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure they've gotten so much value from you today, Mark, and um, just wanted to give you a little bit of time for self-promotion since you've given so much to the listeners. How can people listening help you? I, you know, I, I've got some marketing guys working on that right now because that's definitely my my not my strong suit. You know, again, because I'm 55. Like, I, I turned to my son who helped me write my two books. My middle son, um, he well, you know, he can spell and he knows he knows what a semicolon means. I don't know any of that stuff, right? So I'm I'm terrible with that, right? Like, uh, I actually had four waves of editors uh, for my first book. I've had three so far for my two so far for my second. And when they would first start working with me and they'd send, Mark, you can't say it that way. You got to say it a different way. I'd send them back an email saying, whom cares? I, you know, I tell you, I was really proud of that joke. Not a one of them got it or laughed at it. They were too serious. But the deal is, is the, um, 
So that puts me kind of behind the eight ball. My book is available on Amazon. That's Metatrends in the Next Economy. And it's not a bestseller. It is the highest rated econometrics book on Amazon for four years in a row. So uh, I made a mistake. This is how bad I am at marketing. I entitled the book Metatrends in the Next Economy. And I realized, realized in hindsight, I should have entitled that book. You're going to die unless you buy this book. Because it took me to write the second book to figure that out. <laughs> so the uh, so in in order to sell an econometrics book, you have to you have to have depression in the title. So when I rewrite it, I'm gonna I'm gonna say you're gonna die unless you buy this book, and then tell them in the intro why not. So it's available on that. The next book is not available yet. It's uh, it takes about three years to write a book and a year to launch a book. So I'm expecting it out sometime later this year or next year. Um, that book is tentatively entitled The Woking Dead, The Concrete Steps to End America's War with Itself. The uh, Maybe another title would be Blue Lies. Uh, I do have a website. It's nexteconomy.com. They can reach out to me that way. Um, typically, uh, maybe, maybe we could give them my contact information um, for those people it, uh, at the end of this, like an email or something like that. Sure. So. We'll make sure to put all that in the notes and Thanks again. This has been terrific. I'm sure everyone. No, thank you. Kidding me? This is this is Got thank you for your time and for the listeners for their time because this is uh, this is mission work for me and um, that's fraught with frustration. So it's like uh, people like yourself giving me an opportunity. I'm, I'm nothing but grateful. This has been fun, Mark. Thanks again. Me too, bro. Take care, guys. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.